is Monday, May 31st. You are listening to the College Football Daily. My name is Lance Glenn. Today is Memorial Day, and I hope everyone had a fun weekend and is right now listening to this at the pool, at the beach, and surrounded by friends and family. Before we start, I want to remind everyone that if you like what you hear, make sure to drop us a five-star rating and leave us a review. We love to see your comments and would be so gracious for feedback if you want us to cover a topic we haven't already, or if we haven't hit your favorite team yet as we preview all the Power 5 schools this offseason on the College Football Daily. Joining me on today's episode and on the line right now is 24-7 Sports National College Football Reporter, Brandon Marcello. Brandon, thanks so much for coming on today and appreciate you giving me the time. Great. Thanks, Lance. Hope everybody's having a good Memorial Day. So, Brandon, you know, you recently, you took a little trip down south. You talked to Auburn, you talked to Florida State, you reached out um, and had conversations with a few recruits like Emmanuel Henderson, Kojo Antwi, and others. And you even had a conversation with Bobby Bowden. And we're going to kind of jump around to all these different topics today in our conversation. And I want to start there with the Bobby Bowden interview. So I was reading the article you put out. So much of it I found to be just fascinating. And there was so much I didn't know. You know, I was first born in 1996. So I only saw so much of the Bobby Bowden era at Florida State. I had no idea about the SEC's desire for Florida State years ago. I, I The punt ruski happened in 1988, so I wasn't even born yet for that. What were your biggest takeaways from your discussion with Coach Bowden? Was there anything he said that surprised you or even something you didn't know about him or his time in Tallahassee? Yeah, you know, uh, I sat down with him for a little over an hour in his home, and it was just amazing to be able to meet him, number one, finally, but to get to talk to him about football and life and everything. And, you know, just a portion that that Q&A I posted is just literally a fraction of what we got to talk about. And I'm working on some other stories that has his voice in it. But as far as the Q&A, it's well known that Florida State was being courted by the SEC a little bit. But it was pretty much a given that they were not going to join the the SEC because they wanted to join higher academic institutions and the ACC potentially. But for for Bowden, his whole thing was it just made sense for them as a football program to join the SEC because, you know, he wanted to go against Alabama. He's an Alabama boy. Grew up in Birmingham. That was his dream job for the longest time was to coach the Crimson Tide, which, by the way, offered him or offered him a job once and uh, was interested in him in another time. But you know, he even admits, he goes, but goodness gracious, there have been some big games. And I think even himself, he wonders if Florida State would have had all that success it had in the 1990s if it had joined the SEC. And I think the answer there would be no. I think Florida State obviously would have been very successful and may very well have still won two national titles in the 90s. But I don't think they would have won 10 games at least every single year in the 90s like they did and won, goodness gracious, they won, what, like 12 ACC titles, uh, 12 straight ACT titles or whatever. So I don't know if that would have happened in the SEC, especially with Florida coming on there in the 90s under Spurrier and obviously Alabama still doing what it did. So it's fascinating to think like what Florida State would have looked like in the SEC during that time because Florida State... They were the class of college football in the 90s, as we all know. It makes you wonder, for a lot of reasons, not necessarily the games or whether they want to win championships, but would the SEC's reign that we're seeing right now like happen 10 years earlier or 15 years earlier because Florida State would have gotten in there and dominated so many people and it would just kind of made everybody better, as we've seen with Alabama over these last 15, 20 years? It makes you wonder. But you know, the other things we talked about, just his days at Howard College, including which is now Samford University in uh, in Birmingham, his days that he was recalling games as if they happened yesterday from the 1940s. I couldn't believe it. And it, it was just great to talk to him about that type of stuff, things that no one 
he doesn't really get asked about because everybody just wants to know what happened at Florida State and and all that and Deion Sanders and 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 all those players. But it was just fascinating to listen to him talk about the old times, but also how how much coaching has just changed and even was changing, obviously, near the end of his tenure when it ended in 2009. You know, you mentioned everything about the changing of, of how college football is coached and the different things now that coaches have to deal with that they didn't necessarily have to deal with when he was in his prime. What did he say about, you know, the, the two eras, I guess, of coaching here at college football? The sport has obviously changed so much. Coaching has too. Did you guys talk about the differences and what he thinks about the profession now? Yeah, his number one thing was, you know, we could, t- he could talk all day about the changes in recruiting and everything. But for him, it was, you know, back when he first started getting into it, coaches were rarely fired. They were just given five-year contracts usually. And if things weren't working out, the coaches just kind of noticed it and would always try to get another job somewhere, whether it was on a lower level or whatever. And the, the schools rarely had to fire anybody. But nowadays... You know, you're firing coaches sometimes after two years. We've seen it happen just after one year at some programs when they go winless, like at Southern Miss. You know, that's his big thing. And obviously the buyouts. I mean, he was telling me stories about the times he tried to get the Alabama job. And then the second time when Alabama finally came around to him and offered him the job and he realized it wasn't for him. But he was offered numerous jobs. NFL teams were, were interested in him. Auburn was interested in him in 1980 before they hired legendary coach and Hall of Famer Pat Dye. And, um, you know, even then, money was a, started becoming a huge issue in the early 1980s. He had just signed a five-year deal with Florida State in, in 1980, and Auburn came calling, and it was a job he would have really considered and, and gone to because he wanted to be in the state of Alabama, but he couldn't do it because the buyout at Florida State was already $750,000, which is astronomical 1980 still is but astronomical then and you know but even then auburn's president told him just resign come up here we'll fight it in court we'll get it done we want you to be the coach and you know that's the big thing for him it's just the money that's gone around with it but also how these days you know no coach is safe no no matter how long you've been there whereas when he first start got started it was you got a job and you knew that you have money coming in for at least five years and most likely have that job for five years unless you left on your own to go somewhere else. And uh, not like that anymore. Yeah, now it seems like the three years or uh, or bust for some of these programs. Yeah, and he thinks that's kind of unfair because he believes every coach needs five years to, for you to actually see what their program will look like. He said, when you get first hired at a school, your first recruiting class is a wash in a lot of ways. People don't like hearing that. And sometimes it's still a good recruiting class, but those coaches have not had any time to develop relationships when they get hired to come in and get that first recruiting class in February. That second recruiting class, you start getting a feel for what type of players you're going to get there. By year three is when you should start seeing success, he says. And at year five, that should be the absolute watermark for where your program will be in the future and how high it can go in the future. There should be no excuses by year five. That's your best team at that point. And that's why he thought those five-year deals just made absolute sense to him and still would, but there's no patience anymore when it comes to that, especially in, in power five football. Yeah, and especially with the transfer portal as well now, a thing where you can bring in ready-made players into your program. In regards to, I guess, the current staff at Florida State, look, Mike Norvell and his coaches, they're in the same position as so many others where their first season with a new program obviously came in 2020 with all the COVID obstacles as well. Three and six in year one. How is the staff looking at this last season, though? Do they kind of look at it as a year zero, as opposed to a year one, since they obviously didn't have the same offseason and regular season that they normally would to really evaluate what they have? and because of the fact that they also 
obviously added a lot of new pieces this offseason alone. Yeah, you know, the coaches didn't specifically say year zero, but I'm calling it year zero just based off of the obstacles and things I heard from them about what they had to do in their first year. Because it sounds nothing like any other first year that you would hear from any other coach. And this year is kind of when they're finally in that year one. And so what's what was different, as you mentioned, was the COVID situation. But they got into into on campus there where they had to quickly put a recruiting class together and hold it together when they got there in year one, much like I said earlier. And that does that doesn't it's not necessarily the class that you want, the type of players that you want. Now, the coaches won't say that, but that's the case everywhere. They don't have the exact players they would have recruited in every position. So they sign and they keep those guys together. But for them, the big, big, big issue for Florida State and for Mike Norvell's staff is they got there and then things get shut down and they're unable to make any connections or develop really any relationships in person one with players, but more importantly, the coaches throughout the state of Florida and obviously in Georgia and nearby Alabama on the high school level. And that is crucial to getting in the homes and getting into the minds of these players in the state of Florida because we all know the big schools in Florida already. They've got inroads everywhere. And usually their staffs, their head coach might be newer or whatever, but usually they have some people on the staff that have been in Florida forever. They have high school connections. In Florida State, that wasn't necessarily the case. So they were kind of sitting back trying to develop relationships on the phone and through Zoom with these coaches. And that's just not the same as doing it in person or a high school coach sitting there and going, hey, the head coach for Florida State's coming to our school today and they're going to see the kids are going to be like, oh my goodness, you're just regular students. It's going to be it's going to be like an event there. And then they get to sit there and develop those relationships. They didn't get that. Florida State had really no mystique that first year there. It was almost like it was a no-name staff. You know, they didn't no one knew knew who these coaches looked like. They couldn't identify them. Whereas if they were on the road and got to visit these schools, they could have easily made those connections and said, hey, that's the Florida State coach. And for better or worse, fair or unfair, Florida State didn't have that at all this past year. So I think in a lot of ways, Florida State may have been the one program that could have taken the biggest hit last year during COVID because they're breaking in a new staff. And for the most part, I, I hate to say it, but they were kind of unknowns, so as I said. I mean, we all know who Mike Norvell is. We all know what he looks like. We all know what he's capable of. We all know he's a great, great offensive coach. But to everyday kids, even some recruits, they don't quite know that. They don't know know that. They're they're too busy thinking about Fortnite and uh, <laughs> or, or uh, you know whose album is dropping. See, I'm so old. Album dropping? Do they even say that? Your record album? Whatever. Uh, who's, who's, uh, whose new song is dropping on SoundCloud? You know? <laughs> did, you get, did you get that CD? No, but but so that happened, and of course the roster just wasn't great last year. And the offensive line has been an issue for them for four or five years, really. It's been building up and building up to be just bad. And so they can't really go in and make big improvements for that. In fact, when I was there, I know they were still searching for offensive linemen. I heard them talking about it. So, yeah, to me, and based off what I was hearing from them, that was very much year zero. And this is year one. And they made it a point this spring and this summer when everything's opening up. They did youth clinics. All that week I was there. So they were flying and driving throughout the state of Florida and doing these youth clinics where no recruiting involved. They just want to be in front of mm -hmm. people in the state of Florida. So they go, hi, I'm so-and-so. This is so-and-so. We work at Florida State University. You didn't know that. And it sticks with those younger kids. And so two or three years down the road, they'll be like, hey, do you remember that time we got to work with Mike Norvell and all these guys? And it'll seem like a bigger deal down the road and it'll help in those communities. They didn't have that last year. And so 
for them, that was huge that week. And then, of course, when June starts and the floodgates are open for recruiting, Mike Norvell told me they're expecting more than 3,000 kids to be on their campus in the month of June. Now, of course, that's not all official visits. Those include their mega camp they're hosting where they already had more than 2,000 kids sign up when I visited them almost two weeks ago. That also includes all the official visits, unofficial visits they're going to have. It's by far the most kids they've ever had there, but also it's much better than what they've had there the last year and a half, which is zero and they're going to suddenly go from zero to 3,000 guys in one month's time. It's very much needed for them there. And this is what they've been building up to since they got on campus. This is what they've been wanting to do since day one. I want to switch to Auburn now. And of all the first-year head coaches, I find Brian Harson's move from Boise State to Auburn to be the most interesting. Look, he's from Idaho, has been a head coach in the Northwest besides one year at Arkansas State. And that Arkansas State season is really his only experience coaching in the Southeast. He was the co-offensive coordinator at Texas for a couple of years, but I, as a New Jersey native, personally don't consider Texas the same part of the South as I do Arkansas or even Alabama. Did you speak to him about the adjustments of coming across the country from Boise to Auburn? And do you think his Northwestern style will work down South? He was at Arkansas State for one year in 2013. That's the closest he's been to the SEC footprint. And he even told me that Arkansas State was completely blur. He couldn't remember anything. In fact, I sat in his office for like 30, 45 minutes in 2013 and talked to him for another story I was working on eight years ago. And he had no recollection of it and has no idea about who I was or anything. And I was like, man, it seems like I made a great first impression with you. And he admits, he's like, I, I don't know quite a bit about the SEC. I, you know, I follow it and I've done research over, over years, you know, when I've had to play opponents, but obviously just because he's a fan of what the SEC has been doing and learning from programs. And as you said, Texas is, Texas is nothing like the SEC when it comes to just the culture and then also how they do things. And so he comes in and he knows those questions because I asked him 12 different ways. Like, how are you, how does what you do at Boise State fit at a place like Auburn and let alone that any program, the SEC. And, you know, his whole thing is about bringing in, you know, you hear this from all coaches, but bringing in the right people. But for him, his blueprint is completely built on the type of coaches he brings in. And they absolutely have to be in his same line of thinking and not just like, oh, I'll do whatever you say, coach. They have to come in with already that philosophy. And so when he's like interviewing, I'm talking to him, what they're he's he's like an open book. He's just saying, all right, write down what you think or whatever, and I'll read it. And I'll tell you if that's exactly what I think. He's not going, hey, this is how I want to do things. So you do it that way. He's wanting to see that these people do it his way already. So he did that at Boise State. He learned from obviously Dan Hawkins there. Um, he talked a lot about him and Chris Peterson. And what they did to kind of build his type of coaching philosophy and what he's going to do at Auburn. Will it work? He doesn't quite know. I mean, no one knows, but he believes it will because now he's got a much wider recruiting area and an opportunity to actually go get some four and five star kids. And he, he thought that that stuff, as much as people probably are criticizing the recruiting right now and the idea that people just kind of believe and assume that he's going to take three star kids and his whole thing is to quote unquote develop them. So that maybe they're like four or five-star kids, like three years in the program. It's like, no, we're not going to do that all the time. We're going to go get four and five-star kids. And you're going to start hearing more about that when these kids are actually able to visit campus here at Auburn. Because to his credit, I think he understands this too. I covered Auburn for seven years. Auburn's a type of school where, yeah, it's a brand name, but you got to actually visit there to understand what's different about the school. But also that's what, that's what gets the kids interested. So you'll hear about four and five star kids even years ago that 
weren't really considering Auburn or they're like third or fourth on the list. And all of a sudden they visit Auburn and they're number one. And it's because they get to visit there. And that's what he's counting on. And also these players will see them face to face. So long answer short, he's taking his blueprint. He's making sure that he gets the people that fit in that blueprint exactly. And he believes he can take it to another level just because he's in the SEC, he's at Auburn, and he should start hearing more and more about them going after some of these big-time kids once they actually get them on campus finally when this open recruiting period opens up in June. And his program made headlines recently. TJ Finley transferred from LSU to Auburn to compete for the starting quarterback job that's been held by incumbent Bo Nix the last two seasons. Harson obviously didn't recruit Nix. That was Gus Malzahn. What are your thoughts on on the Finley transfer first and where the Auburn quarterback position sits right now, you know, do you have a, I guess a, an early favorite for the job? I think it's going to be Bo Nix. Um, no matter what I briefly talked to Harson about Bo Nix before this all happened, obviously when we sat down in his office and, uh, it sounded to me like Bo Nix is this guy, no matter what. Um, I mean, unless like, you know, a Justin Fields type for some reason just drops out of the sky, that's not going to happen. But I think TJ Finley comes in there, one, to be a solid backup for them. For, but for two, there's going to be a competition there in August. But Nix is going to emerge because he was just simply better last year, despite all the criticism Bo Nix has gotten, and deservedly so. He's better at this point than TJ Finley just when it comes to technique and fundamentals. So I expect Bo Nix to be the guy. and But I think... What the coaching staff there is counting on is that Finley will come in and just by the nature of there being competition, it will improve Bo Nix and make him a little bit hungrier to improve. Not to say he's complacent, but when you naturally have someone standing beside you who's gunning for your job and is a threat, that should improve him. Having said that, I think Finley comes in as more or less kind of a, not necessarily a replacement, but they've got Demetrius Davis in there. He was a commitment from and signee from the previous coaching staff. I think he comes in and, and kind of better fits that Demetrius Davis role, which a lot of people don't understand, but he kind of fits that role for them. So at some point, Finley may very well be the starter. I just don't think he does it week one and or even this upcoming season unless Knicks just really struggles and they have to go to turn to Finley and uh, for an immediate fix. Brandon, a couple more from me. I want to hit on a few of these recruits you talked to. Five-star Alabama running back commit Emmanuel Henderson was someone you had a conversation with and he updated you on his future. What did he say about his plans over the next few months? What were some takeaways you got from your discussion with the five-star talent? Yeah, talk about a big fish in a little pond. Uh, you know, he plays in Hartford, Alabama, 2A football, just shattered records like crazy, 10th grade year and then 11th grade, suffered through a high ankle sprain and missed three games, but still put up crazy numbers. And now this summer, you know, he was recorded at only six foot one. Six foot one's good, good height, obviously, for running back, but was 185 pounds. And you look at the pictures of him, you're like, that that guy looks like a junior high kid almost. Well, I, I could tell you, I saw him in person. I was like, he looks bigger than I've seen in the photos. And uh, sure enough, it's because he's put on 15 pounds of muscle just since the end of his basketball season there. He's in the weight room twice a day. He says all he's doing is eating chicken and rice and peanut butter sandwiches, and that's it. <laughs> and uh, the kid is for lack of a better word, thick in the chest and in the shoulders now. You can see it, and he's still trying to reshape his body and get things going. Uh, Jim Bob Striplin, um, who's a former Auburn quarterback who is his head coach, uh, told me that um, you know they're going to get the ball to him every which way they can this upcoming season, but also – he recently timed him a hand time in the 40-yard dash at 4.35 seconds. Uh, Stripling understands that that can, is obviously probably lower than what he's really running, but he says he is as fast as it gets at running back, and uh, but he's trying to bulk up still, get ready and uh, for this upcoming season. And 
throughout June, every weekend in June, he's going to be in Tuscaloosa helping out, uh, try to recruit these uh, official visitors. They're going to be visiting campus uh, for the Tide. But Nation's number one running back, if you watch the film on him, he's an upright runner, a lot like Darren McFadden or Eric Dickerson. I'm not saying he's those guys, but that's how he runs, is upright. He's always standing upright and running long stride he's that type of player and he's putting on that muscle to kind of get up to that that size that Alabama really loves how their running backs and in two years he's, he thinks he'll be the starter at running back for Alabama but the Crimson Tide coaches have told him he said uh, we're going to play you as a true freshman we're going to put you in the slot we're going to let you do some stuff in the return game and and why not super quick and as I said ridiculous numbers he uh, broke the state of alabama record for kickoff returns just as a sophomore uh in a season so the guy's legit last one for me you also spoke with kojo antwi the four-star wide receiver out of georgia about his recruitment where does it stand right now do you have any notes or tidbits to give us about the highly recruited receiver with offers from really the who's who of college football yeah, he said, you know, he's really considering like five schools right now, but he told me that there's real that, that there's two. He's got five finalists or whatever, but there's two that he's probably going to decide between. He wouldn't tell me who they were. I would think Alabama's among those two based off the way he was talking. He said USC is recruiting him the hardest, and he's going to go out there in June. And he says they've been really creative in the way they've been communicating with him and making sure that every time they talk to him, it's never about the same thing. The topic's always different. So he's got two, really two finalists, even though he's got more than that listed. He'll make his decision July 5th on his mother's birthday. And for him, you know, he's a guy that sure is being recruited as a receiver, but his coach believes he could play defensive back on the next level in college football if needed, if receiver for some reason just doesn't work out. But um, it's going to be very fun watching his recruitment in June as he visit, comes off all these official visits and see how his eyes are open. He's very familiar with Georgia, obviously, very familiar with Alabama, being in that area. And also, for those who don't know, is very familiar with Texas A&M because his bro- one of his brothers lives in Houston, and he's been up there a couple times and during the pandemic actually was spent, spent some time in the Houston and also College Station area working out with some players and, and, and recruits in that area. So very interesting to watch. I think we got him in the top 15. I think he might be the number 12 or number 13 receiver in this class and still uncommitted. And we'll find out soon where he stands. But the biggest thing to me was him saying, I, I'm, it's really between two schools at this point. I think Alabama is definitely one of them. National College Football reporter Brandon Marcello giving us everything we need to know about his recent trip down south. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at BMarcello. Brandon, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me, Lance. Remember that if you like what you hear, make sure to give the College Football Daily that five-star rating and review us as well. We love to hear your suggestions on topics, your questions, and whatever else you want to let us know. I'm Lance Glenn. Tune in tomorrow for the next edition of the College Football Daily.